Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21, Matthew 21. Um, this is the, other than the resurrection, uh, which we'll look at on Easter morning, uh, the last uh, miracle of Jesus that we'll, we'll look at in Matthew's gospel. We, we'll end up having to skip one, and if you wanted to read that one's in chapter 20. It's the uh, healing of uh, blind Bartimaeus, though Matthew doesn't name him. Uh, he actually names two, two blind men. Um, but uh, since we have looked at various stories of Jesus being a healing blind men, uh, we want to conclude with, with uh, what is perhaps one of the more unique of the miracles. Matthew 21, and with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we'll start in verse 12. The evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sowed and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sowed pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind man and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to him, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to them, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled and, and saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you receive it if you have faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As Father, as always, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ. Uh, may we see this text and be convicted by it. Um, these are... Words of judgment, and may we, may, we, may we come to you, the God of grace, with repentant hearts. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. I think whenever you read these, these two stories, this passage, I, is it fair to say that your first impression is it, it's a bit of an overreaction? Is, 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 that, is that fair uh, to say that? I mean, say it's not Jesus. Say it's anyone else, you know, your neighbor's kid. And, and you found they showed up at the church swinging a, a whip and knocking over the pews, uh, the holy and precious pews, and, and desecrated everything, uh, shouted uh, things over at staff and leadership and, and at everyone else, and then turned around and started to mess with your garden. I think we would agree that a word we could use would be an overreaction. That is why a lot of people come to this text and they, 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 they try to say what this is really about is it's, it's a lesson about anger. And so we do what we typically do with the Bible. We read the passage and we moralize it. What is the lesson of the story? What's the moral of the story? And so typically we come to this and we say it has a lot to do with understanding righteous anger. And we could certainly draw some application from that. After all, not only do we see the holy and righteous Jesus uh, seemingly having a bad day, we, we could put it this way, or certainly exercising anger, uh, we can see that even the Apostle Paul uh, would say something like, 
um, that when uh, uh, when you or he says be angry but do not sin, which implies one can be angry without sin. Certainly, there is consistency in the Bible of that, and we can look at God Himself who exercises wrath upon the nations, upon individuals out of anger. Right. So, so, so there is the category of righteous anger. But I'm afraid that when we read this passage, its main point is not about that. Rather, it is something much deeper. Let's start with the cleansing in verses 12 to 17. Now, we, we, we skipped over because we're looking at miracles, so we're not going verse by verse necessarily. But, but the first 11 verses are the triumphal entry of Jesus. We have, we have entered into the final week of Jesus. And so what you get in all four Gospels is that the miracles really start to slow down. I think in John's Gospel, there's not a single miracle following the resurrection of, of, of Lazarus and then entering the uh, Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. But he is he is entered as king and he gets off his chariot and the text reads as if the first thing he does as king is he 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 goes to church and he he uh, suggests they should change the color of the carpet. I mean what he does is a to everybody here, right? He's knocking over temple tables. He's causing a great scene. Now, why would he do this? I think there's a couple of things we need to note about what is happening here at the temple. The first thing we need to know is that the Jews have become quite lazy. Now, according to the Old Testament, the Jews were to raise their sacrifices, bring the best that they have, and offer it to the Lord. But that's rather inconvenient, wouldn't you say? Not when they're going to have the sacrifices available for you there anyways. So why travel with this sacrifice when it would just be much more convenient just to show up at the temple and do it there? Think about it. Whenever I was growing up, I remember that when you went on long trips, mom and dad packed lunches because they were cheapskates, right? You remember that, right? No, right, we're on vacation. We have a budget and Cracker Barrel in, in whatever town is not on the budget. There are sandwiches and chips in the trunk. Of course, back then, you could climb into the trunk while your father's going 85 miles an hour down a country roads, right? Because we want to beat the traffic. And, and, and you would just climb right over there, you know, and it helped your prayer life. But you could do it. You could do it, right? What do we do now? Well, it's just more convenient if we just stop, stretch our legs, and have a bite to eat. Right? It's convenient. Why is it that we Amer or we Americans, yes, but why we Franklintonians, I don't know what our term is, particularly us on the east side, whenever your spouse comes up to you, fellas, and, and she says, honey, we really need this. And you start thinking, I think that's only at Walmart. And I am not traveling all the way across the countryside, right, to, to that land over there. You know, those people on the west side. I am not going over to Walmart. I will pay $1,000 more if they have it over here at Kroger or, or Five Below, something like that, right? I mean, you immediately start thinking, please let someone on this side already have that. I'm not getting out, right? Convenience. And so the, the Jews have become quite lazy. Not only that, we need to know that the temple has become a center of extortion. If you were to go to a, a movie theater right now, you get you, uh, you, you, you and your spouse, you get you two tickets. That's going to cost you about $86. But then you decide, you know, we're going to splurge. It's date night, you know, 
And uh, by the way, you can enjoy a date night uh, in, in a few weeks. The youth will watch your kids for fundraising for, for camp. And you're going to have a date night, and we're going to do popcorn. We're going to do snacks. We're going to do large drinks. We're going to do it all. And what do you discover? Your bill went from reasonable to extraordinary. You're thinking, I wouldn't pay this if I were on a, the world's greatest vacation, right? Now, how is it that they can charge you $5 for uh, a three Risa pieces? Why, why is it they can do that? Monopoly. You see, if you can only get the stuff there, they can raise the prices. This is the problem with Monopoly. When there isn't competition, prices will skyrocket. So too, if, if what you're getting in the temple, it isn't just that people find it convenient to, to buy the sacrifice at the temple. The Jews had set it up, the leadership had set it up, that even if you brought your sacrifice, they would find something wrong with it so that you are then forced to buy one of their sacrifices. You see the monopoly? It, is, it targets the poor. It victimizes those who, who, who bring their sacrifice for a reason. Not only are they obedience to Mosaic law, but they often realize we can afford what is made available to us at the temple because they jack the prices up. And so the leaders are ripping off the Jews through temple taxes, currency exchanges, selling of these sacrifices, a host of ways. That whatever they can do to get an extra buck, they were certainly doing that. In fact, uh, some scholars suggest that the sacrifice is sold at 20 times their market value. I want you to think about that. That is worse than what it is you're getting at the movie theater. The third thing we need to note is the location of the extortion. There's some debate about this, but most agree that it is in one of two places both connected. The first option is that this is happening, this extortion is happening in the court of Gentiles. That, of course, is on the outside, the outside court, because there's various ways. And, and so uh, there's the court of the Gentiles that they were not to pass. There were like warnings to Gentiles that if you pass this line, you will be executed on the spot. And they weren't kidding. And it was in various languages, uh, uh, Latin, Hebrew, Greek, whatnot, or Aramaic and Greek. And then, then there's you know, the court of the Jews, and then the men can go farther, then the priests can go farther, the high priests go farther, and all of that. And so what, what some scholars think is that it began in the court of the Gentiles, you know, where everybody was. And then it became so massive, it started to seep even more farther into the, the temple. Regardless, what we need to see here is the serious nature of this problem. The Jews was to be a light unto the nations. And so they were to welcome in the Gentiles. They were to welcome in the nations so that what you have here is the Garden of Eden, where, where people gather to, to, to be in unison with God himself. Despite all the brokenness and sin and this system of religion and ritual what was to bring God and man back together. But when the nations come into the temple, what do they find? Consumerism, extortion, greed, pride, corruption. So Jesus responds to the circus not by calling a meeting or forming a committee. He drives it out as the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord over the temple. He, as king, drives out the consumerism and demands proper worship. Clearly, Jesus takes the work of the temple and the worship it is to, to, to lead us to very seriously. I think we could pause and consider and look at where we are as 21st century Americans, particularly in a post-COVID world, and find some real application here we could look at briefly. 
Because I see two similar abuses in our churches today. The first is that of pride. We could use the term American consumerism. American consumerism has entered the church through selfish pride. Think about it. We tend to shop for churches rather than gather simply for worship. That is why it does not take much for the average Christian in American Christianity and evangelicalism to be divorced of their church despite how long they've been there, despite the roles they may have and how they've served for so many years. The slightest thing can happen. They will divorce that church and start the process of hopping. Babylon B years ago, I couldn't find the exact headline, so I'll just make up mine. But the Babylon B had a headline that it said something to the extent that Christian family in Iran travel 800 miles in search of the perfect church. I love that because what they're getting at is that, look, if, if Christians in China, they've got one choice and they hope the government doesn't find out. If Christians in Saudi Arabia or North Korea or Iran, they can find contentment with the people of God in one singular location, then the problem with church hopping is usually not the churches we're hopping from. You should find the ability to love the people of God wherever the people of God are found. But when consumerism enters into the church, we become consumers and not worshipers. This is why we think that unless the church meets a personal need, it should be discarded or changed. We enter as consumers. We want to receive rather than to give. And this has severely damaged the church. As consumers, we turn the gospel into a product. What can the gospel do for me? It's why we moralize the text. This is why you can buy books that sell in the millions about how, how with this program, you can solve all the problems. Look, I know this because I worked in American Christian consumerism. I worked at a Christian bookstore for a total of five years, first on the music side and then, and then on, on, on the uh, retail side or the inventory side. And, and I don't know how, how it is that we justified half the books and products we sold there. I mean, there would be a, a dieting program. You can buy the whole program. And it had nothing to do with Jesus other than the guy in the front happens to be a Christian, right? It was the same product you had otherwise, but you stamped that Christian label on it, then it must be inspired by God, right? I mean, they're entire dieting programs written by pastors. And you're thinking, I don't think that book of the Bible was about how to lose weight, right? I hope you lose weight, right? I need to lose a few pounds. But that passage you're pulling out from, Jesus is not like a verily I say unto thee, I hope we can all have a six-pack of, of, of apps. That's not what the point of the text is. And we sold this stuff constantly. Why? Because we want to turn the gospel into a product that meets my wants and needs. If it doesn't entertain, if it doesn't satisfy, if it doesn't do X, Y, or Z, well, I'll just move on to something else. It's consumerism. Worship is not about our preferences but about recognizing God's glory and attributing it to him. This is one of the big temptations about pastoral ministry and working in the staff is the temptation is in a consumeristic society, we want to turn ourselves into entrepreneurs who are creating a brand. We write books. We have a podcast. We sell tickets. We draw crowds. That's consumerism, not worship. The second thing we need to guard that you see here in this text is ritualism. Ritual for the sake of ritual is, not, is neither spiritual nor beneficial to the soul. Going through the motions is useless if the spirit is not involved. 
I think one of the reasons why churches are struggling following COVID-19 is due to ritualism. Once the ritual of weekly worship was interrupted or forced out of our hand, we discovered that worship and gathering with the people of God mattered very little to us. Notice that even though Israel were obeying every rule, every ritual, and kept every tradition of their ancestors, their hearts remained far from God. Is it possible the same could be said of us? What's interesting about Matthew's telling is, is the, the cleansing of the temple is quite brief, and Matthew's the briefest of the four Gospels. But what he includes at the tail end is unique to Matthew. Notice what he says, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. Well, that's one word for it from their perspective, right? And the children cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Notice that they are crying in the temple where they are crying in the streets. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, now notice what Matthew is doing here. He's, he's refocusing our attention from the cleansing of the temple by which he's dealing with that consumerism, the extortion, the oppression, the injustice, the wickedness of it all, the ritualism, the traditionalism, he, where Jesus cleanses that. And unlike the other Gospels, Matthew says, Jesus didn't merely come to destroy, he came to construct. Notice that when he cleanses the temple, who gathers in? The blind, the lame, the oppressed, the poor, the young, the children. And notice what has replaced consumerism. Worship. They had to scream outside on the streets because there was no room for them in the temple. But once Jesus comes to cleanse the temple as the true and better temple, they enter into the house of God singing the praises of God. And it is the sort of people that this system of religion had oppressed. Jesus expels the religious elite while welcoming those who hunger for righteousness. Around them are overturned tables and now walking paralytics, scattered coins, and blind men who can now see. The temple has been cleansed and is ready for worship. It's not just destruction, it is construction. But notice not only do we see the cleansing here in this passage, the cursing in verses 18 to 22. Now, I believe that both the cleansing and the cursing explain one another. That is, they are connected. And you can look at them as individual passages, and that would be fine. But I think it's better if we see them as narrative units. Right? And, and so the one leads to the other, and one explains the other. So we could say that the cursing of the fig tree does help us explain the cleansing of the temple. Now notice there in, in verse 18, in the morning as he was returning to the city. Now, now that takes some guts, doesn't it? I mean, he, he walks in as king, right? And that, that ruined his popularity. And then he, he has to deal with, with the temple. It gets a little violent there. That's, got a, uh, that's one way to lose friends and not to influence people. And then the next day, he's right back in there, right? What trouble are you going to stir today, Jesus? 
Well, he returns, and, and while he's returning, Jesus became hungry. Now, I'm tempted to do a whole theological exploration of the humanity of Jesus. But notice here, Jesus, as a good Southern Baptist boy, is hungry, right? And so he, he wants to eat. He sees uh, the uh, open buffet in the distance, right? That's where I need to be. So that is where he's going. And, and so he sees a common fig tree, and he discovers it lacks any food, now, fruit. Now, there is, there is a problem here. You can read all your commentaries, and particularly when critics come to this text, they always point out, why would Jesus expect to see fruit when it's not the season for fruits? We lived in Breckenridge County. We, we, we lived at a parsonage, and so um, on the parsonage was a uh, persimmon tree. Now, I'll be honest with you, I know nothing about persimmons. I had had one once upon a time because my parents tortured us, making us eat everything that was on our plate, especially if we were at family's house, right? Just eat it, okay? And so, so I'd had a persimmon, but I'd never grown a persimmon tree, anything like that. So I never really knew when are they ripe. Well, I know now it's after the first frost, right? You know, so, so everyone's always asked me, well, are you trying those persimmons? No. Every time they fall, I run over with the lawnmower like a real man, right? But no, I have it. I'm not going to fix persimmon pie. Can you fix persimmon pie? I don't care. I don't even have to answer that question. I'm not, I just, it's, not, it's not the tree I would plant. I don't want an apple tree. Just put an apple tree there. I'd eat apples all day, every day. Learn about gravity. That's a Sir Isaac Newton joke there. And, and that, that just move on my life. I don't want persimmons. One day, someone was just annoying me. Well, if I had a persimmon tree, I would just fix all this stuff. And, you know, I was like, fine, I'll go have persimmon. I picked it off. I don't know what a ripe persimmon is or not. And very I say to thee, it was not ripe, right? I mean, my sinus was clear until COVID. I mean, it was great, you know? You know, now I eventually figured it all out and we, we would pass them around church and whatnot and it was all good. Well, well, why would you expect a persimmon tree to be ripe and ready before it's supposed to be ripe and ready? So too, why was Jesus expecting fruit from a tree when it is not the time for the tree to produce fruits? That's the question of the text. And I, I can give you an answer to that question. There's leaves. You see, the way a fig tree works, by the way, the fig tree is the first specific tree mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 3. The way the fig tree works is first comes fruit, then comes the leaves. Which means from a distance, if you see the leaves, you can safely assume there is fruits. So here is Jesus, hungry, walking back into Jerusalem. And from a distance, he sees a fig tree. He's like, oh, look at this fig tree. It's ready to go. I'm a hungry boy. And I got, really got a big appetite throwing over a temple table. Things are heavy. And he walks up to him. What does he find? The looks of a fruitful tree, but it lacked any real fruit. Do you see where this is going? From a distance, it looks good. But up close... It was not. So Jesus curses the fig tree there in verse 19, and it immediately withers. This is one of only two destructive miracles in the ministry of Jesus we have recorded for us. The other is when he cast out the demons and they go into the pigs and they turn into lemurs. What is the point of this? The cursing explains the cleansing. The fig tree is, is again, uh, the first tree mentioned in the Bible, and it became a, a uh, picture of Israel in the Old Testament and a fitting picture of Israel in the times of Jesus.
The tree had leaves, but no fruit. Like Israel, from a distance, it looked holy. It looked righteous. But the closer you got, say around the the Gentiles' court of the temple, the more you realize this isn't fruit. It's corruption. Jesus responds to the mere appearance of spirituality with judgments. Two events, same message. Unfruitful Israel, unfruitful religion, unfruitful ritual, unfruitful legalism, Christ comes to condemned. Jesus is declaring war, notice here, not against oppressive Romans, but against oppressive religion. What caused Jesus our our was not nonsense out of Rome and its government and its leaders, elected or not. What drew his ire was nonsense at the temple, where the people of God who called upon God lacked the spirit of God in their lives. Any of this making sense yet? From a distance they looked holy. The temple was beautiful. They had the ritual. They had the sacrifices. Everything looked as if they always wanted it. But the closer you got, all you can see was unrepentant sin, corruption, and evil. But Jesus' judgment is not merely destructive. It is constructive. This, by the way, is the difference between a political mob and the gospel. One comes with fire. The other comes with water of baptism. When Jesus cleansed the temple and welcomed the destitute back into the temple, no doubt the profiteers would just have set up the tables again. Likewise, the owner of the fig tree, assuming it was privately owned, no doubt when he saw his withered, could, could tear it down and replant another one. So we are to look beyond these simple acts of destruction for a broader work of construction. Ever since, in Matthew 16, Peter confessed Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew has told us how Jesus restores the broken, the corrupt, and the unjust. He does it by the cross. We, we've, we've mentioned this in the last few weeks. In the first 16 chapters, it's the kingdom is coming. The kingdom has arrived. I'm the king. And, and we are building anticipation of what this kingdom will look like. The poor and the blind and the destitute and the hurting are all part of the kingdom because Christ restores, Christ builds, and it is good news. But at chapter 16, that pivot there at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus starts saying the kingdom comes by the means of the cross. So if it's pure religion you want, if it's true spirituality you want, it will come not by ritual, not by religion, but with the righteousness of Christ. It comes by the means of the cross where Christ takes upon himself the wickedness of man the, 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 the corruption of institutions and everything else and is laid upon him and he suffers and dies under the darkness at noon but three days later he is resurrected and through it restoration and redemption are made available to all who come to him this is the kingdom of God and it is beautiful 
It wars against the kingdom of man. It heals the brokenness of humanity. It restores what has been lost for the good of neighbor and the glory of God. In fact, notice what it is that Matthew does starting in verse 20. When the disciples saw that, they're like, dude, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) explanation please, right? And they asked, how did you do that with the fig tree? Jesus answered, if you have faith and do not doubt, you not only do what, is, what has been done to the fig tree, but even more if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, and it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it if you have faith. You, you see, this, this is bigger than the fig tree. It's bigger than the temple. It's about moving mountains. Now, again, we can moralize this text, and there's certainly room for great application. This is a lesson on faith and prayer, no doubt about that. But I think there's something bigger Matthew wants you to see. It is pointing us to the triumph of the gospel. In cleansing the temple and cursing the tree, Jesus announces judgment upon fruitless and corrupt religion and fruitless and corrupt Israel. The tools Jesus will use to construct a better kingdom is the disciples. Don't you, you see, boys? It's a fig tree. You've got bigger problems coming at you than a fig tree. And it's that temple over there. It's got to come crashing down. Everything it's it's representing, all the corruption there, it must come crashing down. That's a mountain. That's a lot bigger than a tree with no fruits. So here are the disciples, these teenage kids, and they're they're thinking, "Well, well, how can I do that? Well, that's the mountain. It's the faith in the gospel. The disciples would do precisely that. Not one educated person among them yet, they changed the world. I believe the gospel is the power of God that changes the world and regenerates hearts. I believe that, and I trust you do too. So if it is America you are wanting to save, it has to begin in the church of God with the people of God. How many more sex candles will it take before we realize the problem isn't policy? It's our application of the gospel within the church. How many more church-hopping believers will it take before we realize the problem isn't with the music or the youth ministry? It's us. How many more souls will have to die without the gospel, salvation for their souls, for we realize that the problem isn't who occupies positions of government, it is me. Carl F. H. Henry from the 20th century famously said, the early church did not look at the world and say, what has become of it? Rather, they said, look at who has come into the world. What a difference of perspective. Desiring God website had an article recently. Here, and, and here's the big quote that I just love. It's hard to joyfully and consistently proclaim the gospel when all you do is complain about your mission field. If you want to change the world, if you want to change your neighborhood, it won't begin with mob-like mentality, with, with power politics, And everything else, it will come when we're on our knees in genuine worship and prayer, trusting that mountain will move to the glory of God. A post-COVID revival of the church. That's a mountain.
That is a challenge. Overcoming American consumerism in worship, well, that's a mountain. That is a huge hill to cross. Prioritizing spiritual disciplines over entertainment, that's a mountain for every Christian here. Warring against sin, well, that's a major mountain. But the good news is, you and I worship a Savior who uses disciples to move those mountains if we will believe. So tell me, was it an overreaction? Given at what is at stake, I think we should be sympathetic to Jesus here. What else should he do? And wouldn't it be good if that same righteous passion took over our churches? I agree. We need some cleansing. And let it begin within the house of God in our time and in our day. And just watch what happens. But let it begin with you. And let it begin with us. Let's pray.